Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, uh, let me remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. Let's get into it. We got a couple of obituaries to start us off here. First, from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 23rd, Mar- uh, 2023, Peter Werner, Oscar winner, director of TV's Moonlighting. His other small screen credits include Law & Order SVU and Justified by Alexandria Del Rosario. Peter Werner, whose directing work spent several hit television series including Moonlighting, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, and Justified, has died. He was 76. In an email shared by The Hollywood Reporter, TV producer Tom Werner, that 70s show, said his brother died Tuesday morning in Wilmington, North Carolina. He had a torn aorta that the doctors weren't able to repair. So sudden, Tom Werner told THR. Peter Werner, born January 17, 1947, graduated from Dartmouth College in 1968. He continued his studies at Antioch University, where he earned his master's degree in teaching and at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. Werner launched his directing career at AFI, graduating with more than just another master's degree to his name. While a student, he directed the 1975 short film In the Region of Ice, based on Joyce Carol Oates' short story of the same name. The short, which starred Finola Flanagan, won the live-action short Oscar in 1977. A short film brought Werner to Oscar's glory, but the director mainly focused his talents on television. After his Oscar win, he landed directing gigs on a range of TV projects throughout the 70s, including the TV show Aunt Mary. In 1985, he directed several episodes of the Emmy-winning TV series Moonlighting starring Stivel Shepard and Bruce Willis. He earned an Emmy nomination in 1986 for his directing on the series. From the 1990s to early to early aughts, Werner directed dozens of TV movies, including Blue Rodeo, uh, The Good Policeman, and The Good Policeman. In the last decade, Werner directed for the TV series Unforgettable, Justified, Bull, Unreal, and Law and Order SVU. By the end of his career, Werner earned a total of four Emmy nominations and was honored with a Peabody Award for his work in LBJ the early years. In addition to his brother, Werner is survived by his wife, Kedrin, and children, Lily, Catherine, and James, according to THR. That was Peter Werner, 1947-2023, Oscar winner director of TV's Moonlighting, by Alexandra Del Rosario, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 23, 2023. All right, here is another one from the California section, the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 24th, 2023. Connie Martinson, 1932-2023, to the Grand Dame of Letters in Los Angeles. Cable TV hosts interviewed thousands of authors by Barbara Eisenberg. Connie Martinson, an insatiable reader and admirer of writers who interviewed thousands of authors on her long-running cable television show, Connie Martinson Talks Books, has died at her home in Beverly Hills. Martinson, who died peacefully on March 9, was 90. Her cable television show began in 1979 
and by the time it ended in 2015, it had been seen by millions nationally and in Canada. She interviewed an impressive roster of writers, and among them, an upward-bound Barack Obama, eloquently discussing his then-new book, Dreams from My Father, in 1995, as well as such other prominent fiction and non-fiction authors as Walter Mosley, Ray Bradbury, Maya Angelou, Studs Terkel, Norman Mahler, Mailer, uh, Carolyn Z, Car uh, Joyce Carol Oates, and Amos Oz. Connie Martinson was an essential part of the literary life in this city, said author Janet Fitch, whose novel White Oleander was a bestseller, Oprah's book club selection, and was made into a film. She was a great interviewer, and she read your book really carefully. She had such clarity and insight and could zoom in, zoom right in on what was most important. There was also something soothing about the liveliness of her face and eyes. You saw the spark of pleasure she had in reading and in talking about reading. She was the sort of person you would want to sit next to at a dinner party. Nearly 2,000 of Martinson's interviews are now accessible on the Claremont Colleagues Digital Library site, where she donated her tapes in 2008. As of this week, the Digital Library has 1,801 now digitized items in the Connie Martinson Talks Books collection. Martinson was incredibly curious, very smart, and very disarming, said Rick Wartzman, former executive director of the Drucker Institute, who in that role acquired the collection and made it available through the school's digital library. I eventually came to know what wide-ranging interests she had. Look at the list of people Connie landed interviews with. Some of the greatest names in politics, culture, literature, in that respect alone, it's priceless. She discussed anti-Semitism with A. Scott Berg and Alan Dershowitz and uh, talked with uh, Carlos Fuentes about Spain's colonization of Mexico and questioned Michael Tolkien about his book, The Player, and Bud Schulberg about his book, What Makes Sammy Run. Among the nonfiction writers interviewed were such prominent journalists and essayists as Peter Hamill and Maureen Dowd. Novelist Sidney Sheldon did 10 interviews, and Ray Bradbury, with 14, was clearly a favorite. But Martinson also had first-time writers, as long as it's a book. Also, first-time writers, as long as it's a book, then the author is a potential guest. She once said. Martinson could chat about almost anything, particularly whatever her guest subject might be. She'd get to the studio with a well-worn copy of the guest book, no matter how new the book was. Key pages were marked with dozens of yellow post-its, and she knew the books so well, she could often jump in with the answer if a guest stalled. She was also a speed reader, noted her son-in-law, Douglas Carner. She'd read the book so fast, you'd feel the breeze from the pages, and she would have read every, she would have read every single word. Martinson didn't exactly plan her career path, said her daughter, Juliana Carner, who manages the family business. In the mid-1970s, my mother worked for the Coro Foundation, which trained young people for government work. When Coro was offered a radio show and turned it down, my mother said, Oh, that sounds interesting. I'll do it. She was up for any adventure that came along. She began by interviewing celebrities and others that she and my father knew through his work as a television and film director. Then one day in 1979, she said, I'm bored and have gone through all my friends. That's when she came up with putting together the two things she liked doing the most, 
ask questions, and read books. So began Connie Martinson Talks Books. Martinson starts, started with a few writers such as Bradbury, whom she knew, and then moved on to people she sort of knew. Launched in Los Angeles in 1979, her show appeared on government and other cable stations around California, then on a, a New York City cable access station. Her show went national in the mid-80s, and according to her daughter, Martinson was at her peak in the early 90s when she had 23 million viewers. Carter worked with her, with her mother for about two years in the early 80s, also interviewing authors. Afterwards, I said to my mother, thank you for doing this for me, and she said, if you weren't any good, I wouldn't be doing this, and I, I adored that she said that. Constance Fry Martinson was born in Boston on April 11, 1932, and graduated from Wesley College in Wesley, Massachusetts, where she was awarded the Davenport Prize for Speech and Literature. Connie was always active in support of Wesley College, her alma mater, and mine, uh, in the Los and the Los Angeles Wesley Club, said a longtime friend, Lee Raymer, a former member of the Los Angeles Culture Affairs Commission. It was always interesting to listen to her interviews because she asked questions that all of us might ask. She worked as an editor for Writer Magazine in Boston before moving to Los Angeles with her husband, Leslie Martinson, whom she married in 1955. Martinson, who died in 2016 at 101, directed such films as PT-109 and the original Batman and such episode, episodic TV shows as Maverick, 77 Sunset Strip, and The Brady Bunch. Connie Martinson attributed the show's success to her ability to get the authors to open up. I try to hold the audience's attention by trying to put them in my seat. I also want to know what makes the author tick, so I try to think how the ideas and rhythm came from each author, she told Los Angeles Magazine in 2008. Writers would come to L.A. and do her show and Johnny Carson's show, said her son-in-law. At the house are thousands of books, and they still have post-its in them. It was very common for her to, sh to know things that the author of the book wouldn't remember having written. Martinson's show over the years was largely self-financed, uh, self Douglas Carner said, adding that his mother-in-law never wanted the show to be syndicated or commercial because she didn't want to lose control. The mission was more important than the money, she, he said. Her feeling was if she, couldn't, if she could find one person who could discover the joy of holding a physical book, she would feel fulfilled. When each interview ended, she nearly always asked the author to autograph his or her book before reminding her viewers to support their local library. Her passion for books and writers was clearly noted. She was the grand dame of letters in Los Angeles for decades, said author, critic, and Jewish journal book editor Jonathan Kirsch. Her interview series was a venue for people promoting their books from all over the world. She was a local celebrity and a familiar face and name in the book community. There was no book-related event that I attended where I didn't see Connie. Martinson is survived by her daughter, son-in-law, grandson Richard Carner, and grandson-in-law Michael Carner. That was Connie Martinson, 1932-2023. to the Grand Dame of Letters in Los Angeles by Barbara Eisenberg from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 24th, 2023. Eisenberg is a former, uh, former, time staff, former time staffer, the author of Conversations with Frank Gehry, and the subject of one of Martinson's interviews.
All right, we got a couple of Israel stories here. This uh, first one is from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, March uh, 20, 2023. Biden calls Netanyahu with concern over court's plan. Israeli government says the overhaul is meant to correct an imbalance of power. From the Associated Press, Wilmington, Delaware. President Biden spoke Sunday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to express concern over his government's planned overhaul of the country's judicial system that has sparked widespread protests across Israel and to encourage compromise. The White House said Biden reiterated U.S. concerns about the measure to roll back the judiciary's installation from the country's political system in a call uh, a senior administration official described as candid and constructive. There was no immediate indication that Netanyahu was shying away from the action after rejecting a compromise last week offered by the country's figurehead president. The official, who requested anonymity to discuss the leader's private call, said that Biden spoke to Netanyahu as a friend of Israel in the hopes that there can be a compromise formula found. The White House, in a statement, added that Biden understood his belief that democratic values have always been and must remain a hallmark of the U.S.-Israel relationship, that democratic societies are strengthened by genuine checks and balances, and that fundamental changes should be pursued with the broadest possible base of popular support. The president offered support for efforts underway to forge a compromise on proposed on, uh, judicial, judicial reforms consistent with those core principles, the statement said. Netanyahu told Biden that Israel will remain a strong and vibrant democracy according to the Prime Minister's office. Netanyahu said Sunday the legal changes would be carried out responsibly while prote protecting the basic rights of all Israelis. His government, the country's most right-wing ever, says the overhaul is meant to correct an imbalance that has given the courts too much power and prevented lawmakers from carrying out the, vote, the voting public's will. Critics say it will append Israel's delicate system of checks and balances and slide the country toward authoritarianism. Opponents of the measure have carried out disruptive protests and it has even embroiled the country's military. After more than 700 elite officers from the Air Force, Special Forces and Mossad said they would stop volunteering for duty. The conversation followed a Sunday meeting in Egypt between Israeli and Palestinian officials in which they pledged to take steps to lower tensions ahead of the sensitive holiday season. Administration officials praised the outcome of the summit to the, in the Egyptian Red Sea resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. A joint communique said uh, the sides had reaffirmed a commitment to de-escalate and prevent further violence. Biden in the call reinforced the need for all sides to take urgent collaborative steps to enhance security coordination, uh, con uh, condemn all acts of terrorism, and maintain the viability of a two-state solution, according to the White House. The Israeli and Palestinian delegations met for the second time in less than a month, shepherded by the regional allies Egypt and Jordan, as well as the United States, to end a year-long spasm of violence. More than 200 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and more than 40 Israelis or foreigners have been killed in Palestinian attacks during that time. Israel pledged to stop discussion of new settlement construction for four months and to stop plans to legalize unauthorized settlement outposts for six months. 
the two sides agreed to establish a mechanism to curb and counter violence, incitement, and inflammatory states and actions, the communique said. The sides would report on progress at a follow-up meeting in Egypt next month, the communique added. The Biden administration remains concerned about a repeat of the nightly clashes and other violent incidents between Palestinians and Israelis in Jerusalem during Ramadan two years ago. Clashes at the Temple Mount in 2021 helped trigger an 11-day war between Israel and Hamas, which rules the Gaza Strip. That was Biden calls Netanyahu with concern over court's plan by, from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times Monday, March 20, 2023. Alright, here's another one from the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, March 22, 2023. Biden is urged to act on Israel. Many American Jews are dismayed as the far-right government turns from democracy by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. With massive street protests, a mutiny by elite military reserve officers, and outrage from diplomats, academics, and former officials, Israel seemed steeped in epic crisis. Shockwaves over radical plans by the new right-wing Israeli government are also cascading thunderously in the U.S., alienating Jewish Americans or raising questions about the Biden administration's ability or willingness to confront the troubles. Israel's figurehead president, Isaac Herzog, warred bluntly of a, new, of a civil war. The abyss is within touching distance, Herzog said last week, making the bleak assessment after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a proposed compromise over his coalition's efforts to weaken the Israeli Supreme Court and national judiciary. Netanyahu, who is on trial for corruption, wants to subjugate judges to politicians and make it easier for members of the Knesset or Parliament to overturn court's decisions. But the debate now goes much deeper than the judiciary to to the essence of democracy itself, critics say. This is not just a political crisis. This is an existential crisis, Rabbi Noah Farkas, president of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, said, hours after returning from an urgent trip to Israel late last week. Though both sides have legitimate grievances, he said, the questions being raised are starkly fundamental. What does Jewish mean? Zionist. What does uh, being an Israeli mean? Farkas said. This is a coup d'etat. Alan, Alan Pinkas, who served as a senior foreign advisor in several Israeli administrations, said in an interview from his home in Tel Aviv. He and those who voice similar sentiment believe that the changes Netanyahu and his ultra-Orthodox and extreme nationalist ruling party partners are planning would create a new form of government in Israel. It would be a regime changer, they say, creating something akin to a religious autocracy instead of the Jewish and democratic state that has long characterized how Israel legally defines itself. To be sure, Israel's democracy always came with an asterisk. Palestinians living in Israel or under Israeli occupation in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip do not have full rights. But for Israeli Jews, Israel's democracy has been unique in the Middle East. Yet the government that came to office on December 29, after Israel's fifth election in nearly four years, wants to undo many of the underpinnings of that democracy while also jettisoning the shared values that successive U.S. administrations have cited as the foundation for the so-called ironclad diplomatic, political, and economic relationship between the two countries. In addition to weakening the judiciary, 
Members of Net the Netanyahu government want to expand Jewish settlements on land claimed by Palestinians, thwart a pl uh, Palestinian state, take away rights for the LGBTQ people and some minorities, favor ultra-Orthodox Jews over the Reform and Conservative branches of Judaism that constitute the majority of U.S. Jews, and make the country more religious by eliminating some regulations that preserve its secular character. The new government includes known extremist Itamar Ben-Givur, who once convicted who was, who was convicted of inciting anti-Arab hate several years ago, and Bezalel Smotrich. Uh, Ben-Givur is serving as security minister and Smotrich as finance minister, which gives him significant authority over the West Bank. Since the coalition government was formed, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have filled the streets in Tel Aviv and other cities to protest. The demonstrations turned violent this month when police clashed with protesters in rare Israeli-on-Israeli confrontation. Meanwhile, there has been an intense surge in bloodshed in Jerusalem and the West Bank, with regular Israeli military raids seeking militants in Palestinian cities, Palestinian attacks on civilian Israelis, and vigilante Jewish settlers assaulting Palestinian civilians. It is the deadliest violence in years, and authorities on all sides are bracing for the coinciding holidays of Passover, Ramadan, and Easter in the coming weeks. On Tuesday, the Knesset voted to allow Jewish settlers back into a number of West, settlement, West Bank settlements that the Israeli government itself declared illegal and evacuated eight years ago. Some of the outposts were built on privately owned Palestinian land, the government said at the time. A U.S. State Department spokesman Tuesday said the Biden administration was extremely troubled about such a particular provocative action, but did not announce any sanctions or punishment. The Knesset vote came a couple of days after Smotrich, who oversees civilian administration of the West Bank, said in a widely condemned public remark that there was no such thing as a Palestinian people, nation, or history. While the new Israeli government also roils the Palestinian relationship, the Netanyahu administration's plans are a bridge too far for many Israelis and American Jews, according to some who have long been Israel's staunchest supporters. In addition to liberal pro-Israel organizations, critics now include more conservative groups and leaders, such as former president of the Arab of the Anti-Defamation League, Abraham Foxman, former New York City Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg, and lawyer Alan Dershowitz and prominent members of Congress. Many have latched on to Herzog's efforts at finding a compromise as a way to urge different path, a different path without appearing overly confrontational against Israel. Representatives Gerald Nadler, Democrat of New York, and Brad Schneider, Democrat of Illinois, led a group of 16 Jewish members of Congress in a letter to Netanyahu. Herzog and Israeli opposition leader Yair Lapid uh, to express profound concern about proposed changes to Israel's govern, uh, governing institutions and legal system that could undermine the Israeli democracy and the civil rights and religious freedoms it protects. The letter also urged the Israeli government to suspend its efforts to pass the bills that could fundamentally change the democratic nature of the state of Israel. In another letter to President Biden, 91 Jewish and non-Jewish members of Congress urged the administration to take a more forceful, more forceful action to ease mounting tensions in Israel. 
They also noted that new government's plans to expand settlements on land claimed by Palestinians and efforts to block an independent Palestinian state as additional combustible elements in the region. We urge you to use all diplomatic tools available to prevent Israel's current government from further damaging the nation's democratic institutions and undermining the potential for two states for two peoples, members, the members of Congress wrote. So far, however, the Biden administration officials have, tre have tread lightly on calling out events in Israel. After sticking to a wait-and-see approach, even as the direction Israel was taking became clear, criticism for the most part has been couched in a highly diplomatic language, urging uh, a search for a consensus while expressing wide support for Israel. Biden reiterated these points Sunday in a telephone conversation with Netanyahu, the White House said. The president underscored his belief that democratic values have always been and must remain a hallmark of the U.S.-Israel relationship and said that democratic societies need uh, genuine checks and balances while fundamental changes must be based on the broadest possible popular support, the White House said. In a highly unusual move involving a newly seated Israeli prime minister, Biden has yet to invite Netanyahu for an official visit to the White House. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken also refused to meet with Ben Giver during a recent trip to Israel and in a visit by Smotrich to Washington last week touched off protest rallies outside his hotel. Also on Sunday, representatives of Israel and the Palestinian Authority held a security meeting in the Egyptian coastal city of Sharm el-Sheikh with Egyptian, Jordanian, and U.S. officials present and aiming to reduce violence in Israel and the West Bank. It was the second such meeting in three weeks. Previously, such encounters had fallen by the wayside as security deteriorated in the occupied territories. It is not clear whether the talks will have any impact. Some members of Netanyahu's coalition have already dismissed them. The Biden administration's reluctance to, po to posit a sharper critique of the Israeli government's controversy, controversial policies has bewildered many Israelis and American Jews who say that among the world's power, only the U.S. can influence Israel. What is the U.S. doing to exert leadership and push the parties together, said Jeremy Ben-Ami, who heads the liberal Washington-based advocacy, advocacy group J Street, which promotes Israel-related issues. Pursuing a solution very quietly behind the scenes does not meet the moment. Pinkas, the Israeli diplomat, said that he does not think the U.S. government has the responsibility to deter Israel from what he calls an authoritarian trajectory, but that it is ne negligent for the Americans to continue to act as if nothing is happening. Many U.S. politicians have been reluctant to criticize Israel for fear of losing support among Jewish vo voters. However, vote, voting patterns by American Jews are fairly stable. Polling shows that most lean Democratic. The other large voting bloc that focuses on Israel is made up of white evangelicals who lean Republican. The angst throughout the American Jewish community is evident in newspaper columns, at think tank symposiums, and in synagogue webinars, with many dreading a poll on U.S.-Israel relations or further potential damage to Israel's reputation in the world. A lot of American Jews have yet to understand the depth of the crisis, said Farkas, the L.A. rabbi. 
It is not translating well. The pain, the anger, the tears, they are slowly waking up to it. Ben Ami of J Street said that for most American Jews, support of Israel is a critical part of their identity. But if the center of Israeli society is walking away, he continued, what are American Jews going to do? Susie Gilman, who chairs the U.S.-based Israel Policy Forum, was among the speakers at the protest rally last week outside Smotrich's Washington Hotel, where participants demanded he not be received by U.S. officials. The racism, homophobia, and extremism that she said Smotrich represents does not and must not represent the values of Israelis and the Jew Jewish people worldwide. Israel's future is closely linked to that of Jews in the United States and around the world, Gelman added. We must stand together with our Israeli family to fight for that future, now so greatly threatened by this extremist right-wing government. Another rally participant, Danny Bahar, an international affairs professor and Brown University, at Brown University, highlighted the impact that the Israeli government's actions could have on the country's economy which has been valued by a booming high-tech industry. What the enemies of Israel have not been able and won't be able to ever achieve to see an isolated and economically struggling Israel is happening due to the actions of the current Israeli government, he told the crowd. Capital is flowing out of the country. Businesses and investors are questioning whether they will see return on their investments if the independence of the judiciary is jeopardized. This is a crisis of Israel's own making. That was Biden is urged to act on Israel by Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. All right, and here is another one from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. Netanyahu seeks to ally U.S. concerns. Premier says Israel has no plans to return for uh, four dismantled settler areas to West Bank. From the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared to back down Wednesday, saying his government has no intention of returning to four abandoned settlements in the occupied West Bank under a law that was repealed by Parliament this week. His statement followed harsh U.S. criticism and an international uproar over Netanyahu's far-right government, the country's most hardline ever, over the Knesset vote early Tuesday to revoke a 2005 law that dismantled the four settlements. The Biden administration summoned Israel's ambassador in Washington hours after the vote, a rare rebuke between the allies. Jordan's parliament, meanwhile, in a largely symbolic vote, approved the expulsion of Israel's envoy over the conduct of a firebrand minister. <clears throat> Netanyahu said, the Knesset vote ended a period that discriminated against and humiliated Jews by not allowing them to live in northern Samaria, using the biblical term for the West Bank. That said, he said, the government has no intention to build new settlements in these areas. The U.S. De uh, De Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman expressed the Biden administration's concern to Israeli Ambassador Michael Herzog in Washington over the Knesset votes. Just days earlier, Israel had pledged not to approve new settlement construction or take unilateral action. Since the 2005 law, Israeli citizens have been officially banned from returning to the four locations 
though the Israeli military has allowed activists to visit and pray there. Critics fear the vote could clear the way for rebuilding the forced settlements, abandoned nearly 20 years ago when Israeli forces pulled out of the Gaza Strip and further set back Palestinian hopes for statehood. Sherman and Herzog discussed the importance of all parties refraining from actions or rhetoric that could further inflame tensions leading into the Ramadan, Passover, and Easter holidays, the U.S. State Department said. Pressure against Israel's new government mounted further Wednesday as the Jordanian parliament voted to expel Israel's ambassador over Finance Minister Bezadel Smotrich's speech at a podium adorned with a map of Israel that permanently included Jordan. The incident over the weekend, the parliament in Amman said, reflects Israeli arrogance that does not respect international treaties and covenants. Netanyahu's new hardline government has prioritized settlement construction and triggered unprecedented mass protests in the country against its plan to overhaul its legal system. On Wednesday, in Tel Aviv, hundreds of older women calling themselves Grandmothers for Democracy rallied in protest against the legal overhaul. Some marched and others whirled in a circle dance as they chanted democracy for our grandchildren. The United States, along with allies Egypt and Jordan, is keen to keeping the atmosphere calm. Two years earlier, tensions during Ramadan led to an 11-day war between Israel and the militant group Hamas in the Gaza Strip. That was Netanyahu seeks to ally U.S. concerns from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 23, 2023. And here is another from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 24, 2023. Israel admits it aired an online Gaza campaign. Military says its secret use of fake social media accounts to influence a view of 2021 war was a mistake. By Isabel Debris. Jerusalem. Days into a devastating war with Gaza Strip, Gaza Strip militants in 2021, the Israeli army began deploying keyboard warriors to a second front, a covert social media operation to praise the military's bombing campaign in a, in a coastal enclave. The military acknowledged Wednesday that it made a mistake in launching the secretive influence campaign on social media in an effort to improve the Israeli public's view of the nation's performance in the conflict. The online campaign, which failed to gain traction, was one of several contentious steps taken by the Israeli military in the bloody 11-day war. The fighting killed more than 260 Palestinians and 13 Israelis as the military bombed the Hamas-ruled territory and Palestinian militants launched rockets at Israel. The Israeli daily Haaretz first exposed the social media operation Wednesday, reporting that the army employed fake accounts to conceal the campaign's origin and engage audiences on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Experts say that although the Israeli military has frequently employed inauthentic social media accounts to gather intelligence on Arab states and on Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, this marks the first known instance of a military influence campaign that targeted Israeli citizens. Yuri Kohl, a digital campaign expert, said the revelation could hint that the army has employed the tactic secretively against Israelis before. With the military's tight censorship laws, the army always has the last word in what gets published and what doesn't, he said. What we see here is a tiny facet of an online manipulation campaign that we haven't ever seen before.
The accounts posted and amplified video and images of destruction in Gaza with the Hebrew hashtag GazaRegrets boasting about the strength of Israel's military in a bid to counter viral images showing salvos of Palestinian rockets bombarding Tel Aviv. The accounts targeted right-wing Israelis, tagging popular conservative TV hosts and politicians like secure, nas, current National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Givar and posting in groups of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu supporters with the aim of spreading the message to sympathetic audiences. Popular posts with the Gaza regrets hashtag drew bellicose comments from the Israelis such as, Why are buildings still standing in Gaza? It shows the army's frame of mind that it wants to reassure young people and get them pumped up for the war, Cole said. The Israeli military conceded that it also coordinated the campaign with social media influencers, providing them with images and hashtags to talk up the military's uh, achievements and showcase the danger it inflicted on Gaza. But the hashtag failed to leverage audiences, garnering few if any likes and shares, Haaretz reported. Successful online influence campaigns using false identities take years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to gain followers' trust, experts say. In a statement, the Israeli military admitted that it used a, milit- a limited number of fake accounts over the course of a day in order to increase exposure. In retrospect, it was found that the use of these accounts was a mistake, the military said saying it has not employed the tactic since. It said it had approached social media influencers who joined the operation in an official capacity as the military spokesperson's unit. The military is committed to the truth and adheres to reliable and accurate reports as much as possible, it added. The Army spokesman's office has long played a key role in identifying and defending Israel's military actions in international courts of opinion but its relationship with the media has been strained at times and its tactics have come under criticism, including during the 2021 war when it was accused of circulating misleading reports among foreign journalists. Those reports suggested that a ground invasion was underway in an attempt to lure Hamas militants into a deadly trap. Some reports were told outright an invasion had begun. The military blamed the incident on internal miscommunication. Israel's conduct in the war further inflamed tensions and angered international media when an Israeli airstrike leveled a high-rise building that housed the Associated Press and Al Jazeera offices in Gaza after giving those inside an hour to evacuate. The military said the building housed Hamas infrastructure but has provided no evidence. Israel's handling of the shooting death last year of a veteran Al Jazeera journalist, Shireen Abu Al-Akleh, became the latest tinderbox in relations between the military and reporters. After initially suggesting she might have been killed by a Palestinian gunman, the Israeli military later admitted an Israeli soldier probably shot her and absolved itself of responsibility. The military portrayed the shooting as a mistake during the battle with Palestinian militants without offering evidence. The equivocal conclusion drew sharp condemnations from Palestinians and press freedom groups who noted that Abu Akleh was clearly identified as a reporter and the area appeared to be quiet at the time. 
that was Israel Admits It Aired in Online Gaza Campaign by Isabel Debray from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, March 24, 2023. Debray writes for the Associated Press. Okay, one more Israeli story from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 24, 2023. Israeli lawmakers pass judicial law to protect Netanyahu by Tia Goldenberg. Tel Aviv. Israel's parliament Thursday passed the first of several laws that make up its contentious judicial overhaul as protesters opposing the changes staged another day of demonstrations aimed at raising alarm for what they see as the country's descent toward autocracy. Thousands of people protested throughout the country, blocking traffic on main highways and scuffling with police in unrest that shows no sign of abating, especially as the overhaul moves ahead. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition approved legislation that would protect him from being deemed unfit to rule because of his corruption trial and claims of a conflict of interest surrounding his involvement in the, judici the judicial changes. Critics say the law is tailor-made for Netanyahu, encourages corruption, and deepens social divisions. The legal changes have split the nation between those who see the new policies as undermining Israel's democracy and those who think the country has been overrun by a liberal judiciary. The government's plan has plunged the nearly 75-year-old nation into one of its worst domestic crises. Either Israel will be a Jewish, democratic, and progressive state or religious totalitarian falling isolate, isolated and closed off. That's where they are leading us, Zippy Livni, a former foreign minister and a prominent supporter of the pro protest movement, told Israel's army radio. The opposition is rooted in broad swaths of society, including business leaders and top legal officials. Even the country's military, seen as a beacon of stability by Israel's Jewish majority, is enmeshed in the political conflict, as some reservists are refusing to show up for duty over the changes. Israel's international allies have also expressed concern. The law to protect Netanyahu passed 61-47 to 47 in Israel's 120-seat Knesset, or parliament. It stipulates that a prime minister can be deemed unfit to rule only for health or mental reasons, and that only he or his government can make that decision. It comes after the country's attorney general has faced growing calls for Netanyahu's opponents to declare him unfit to rule because of his legal problems. The attorney general has already barred Netanyahu from involvement in the legal overhaul, <clears throat> saying he's at risk of a conflict of interest because of his corruption trial. The Movement for Quality Government in Israel, a good governance organization, said it was challenging the newly passed law in court and what could set up the first showdown between judges and the government over the legal cha changes. Experts say the overall could set up a constitutional crisis that would leave Israel in chaos over who should be obeyed, the government or the courts. On Thursday, protesters launched a fourth midweek day of demonstrations. They blocked major thoroughfares, set tires ablaze near an important seaport, and draped a large Israeli flag and a banner with the country's declaration of independence over the walls of Jerusalem's old city. Police said they made several arrests around the country. At least three protest leaders were arrested, organizers say. Protesters blocked the main highway in seaside Tel Aviv, and police used water cannon uh, to disperse demonstrators there and in Haifa in the north. 
Netanyahu called on opposition leaders to stop the anarchy immediately after what he said was an attack on Agriculture Minister Avi Dekter, a former head of the Shin Bet Domestic Security Agency. Video on social media showed a protester swiping her flagpole in Dekter's direction, hitting him on the head, but he appeared unharmed. A spokesman for Dekter said that the flagpole tapped his head lightly. Our protest was planned later in the day in a large ultra-Orthodox city near Tel Aviv. The demonstration, demonstration's organizers say the rally there is meant to drive home to that, home to that uh, community that its rights are in danger under the overhaul. Ultra-Orthodox leaders see the demonstration in their midst as provocative. The judicial overhaul crisis has magnified a long-standing rift between secular Jewish Israelis and religious ones over how much of a role religion should play in their day-to-day -day lives. Ultra-Orthodox lawmakers and government are central drivers of the overhaul because they believe the courts are a threat to their traditional way of life. By contrast, secular opponents to the exchange fear that they will open the door to religious coercion. In addition to Thursday's demonstration, tens of thousands of people have been showing up for weekly protests each Saturday night for more than two months. Netanyahu's government rejected a compromise proposal this month. It said it would instead slow the pace of the changes, delaying most of them until after a month-long parliamentary recess in April. But Netanyahu's administration is plowing ahead on a key part of the overhaul that would give the government control over who becomes a judge. The government says it amended the original bill to make the law more inclusive, but opponents rejected the move, saying that change was cosmetic and would maintain the government's grip over judicial appointments. The measure is expected to pass next week. Netanyahu was on trial for alleged fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes in a series of scandals involving wealthy associates and powerful media moguls. He denies wrongdoing and dismisses criticism that he could find an escape route from the charges through the legal overhaul. That was Israeli lawmakers passed judicial law to protect Netanyahu by Tia Goldenberg from the Perspective, the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 24, 2023. Goldenberg writes for the Associated Press. Okay, let's take leave for Israel for right now and stick with the world section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, March 24th, 2023, with this one. Zelensky visits front as Kiev hints a new at new phase in war. Third trip in two days comes as Ukraine gets more modern arms. From the Associated Press, Kiev, Ukraine. Ukraine's president on Thursday made his third visit in two days to areas that have borne the brunt of Russia's war with a trip to southern Kherson, uh, the southern Kherson region that was retaken from the Kremlin's forces, and as a senior Kiev commander hinted that a brewing Ukrainian counteroffensive would come could come very soon. Ukraine took back control of the regional capital, also called Kherson, at the end of last year, pushing out the Russian occupiers who had captured the city in the weeks after the start of Moscow's full-scale invasion more than a year ago. The Dnipro River now marks the front line in the region which is still partially occupied. While in Kherson on Thursday, President Volodymyr Zelensky met with local security officials and inspected infrastructure damage by Russian strikes, his office said. On Wednesday, Zelensky visited Kharkiv in the northern northeast, the country's second largest city. Kiev's troops 
recaptured Kharkiv from the Russians in September as part of the same month-long counteroffensive that won back Kherson. Also Wednesday, Zelensky met with troops in the eastern region of Donetsk, stopping by a hospital to see wounded soldiers and giving state awards to the defenders of Bakhmut, a wrecked city that is now a symbol of Ukraine's dog resistance against Russian President Vladimir Putin's territorial ambitions. Zelensky's 48 hours of vistas, a visit from Kiev and close to the front line, came as improving weather sets the stage for, for possible new offensives by both sides. The bitter winter weather, followed by mud as the ground thawed out, has forestalled any major shifts on the battlefield and the war, and the war largely has been deadlocked in recent months. Ukraine is now starting to receive modern weapons, including tanks from its western allies who are also training Ukrainian troops to use them. Russian forces have been digging in where they hold territory in, their, in the four provinces that Moscow illegally annexed in September. Donetsk, Kherson, Luhansk, and Zaporozhye. Putin has made it clear he wants to have control there. Ukraine's ground forces commander said Thursday that Russian forces were exhausting themselves in their grinding push to take Bakhmut, giving Kiev a window of opportunity for a counterstrike. In a post on the messaging app Telegram, Colonel General Alexander Zersky said that the Russian assault on Bakhmut was causing Putin's forces to lose considerable strength. Very soon we will take advantage of this opportunity, as we once did near Kiev, Kharkiv, Balakia, and Kopiansk, Zersky's added, alluding to their counteroffensive last year that pushed Russia back from the Ukrainian capital and large swaths of the northeast. Russia has kept up its long-range attacks using artillery, missiles, and drones. The death toll from a Russian drone attack Wednesday on a high school and dormitory south of Kiev rose to nine, Ukrainian emergency services reported. Russia on Wednesday also struck a nine-story apartment building in the southern city of Zaporzhenia, where at least one person was killed. In other developments, European Union leaders endorsed a plan to send Ukraine uh, 1 million rounds of artillery ammunition within the next 12 months. The EU said at a summit Thursday that it would also deliver missiles if Kiev requests them. The first four of 13 Soviet-era MiG-29 fighter jets that Slovakia decided to give Ukraine have been handed over to the Ukrainian Air Forces. The Slovakian Defense Ministry said Thursday that the rest will be, will be handed over to the Ukrainian sides in the coming weeks. Finland said Thursday that it would deliver additional defense material, including three Leopard 2 armored mine clear, clearing vehicles to Ukraine in a military aid package worth 161 million euros, $175 million. Finland has so far delivered six le uh, le Leopard vehicles to Ukraine, officials say. The new aid, the 14th such package from Helsinki so far, also includes heavy weapons and munitions. Bulgaria's president said Thursday that, dis that despite expanding the nation's defense industry capital, uh, 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 capital the Balkan, ca capital, Bal the Balkan country, a, five, a member of the North 
North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the EU won't export weapons to Ukraine. Bulgaria has been in the grip of a political crisis and is heading in April toward its fifth general election in two years. The Ukrainian military's general staff detracted uh, a claim retracted a claim that the units on the Russian army had left Nova, uh, Nova Kavakova, a city in the occupied part of the Kyrgyzstan region on the eastern side of the Dnipro. It said the claim was made erroneously as a result of incorrect use of available data. That was Zelensky visit front as Kiev hints at new phase in war from the Associated Press out of the world section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, March 24, 2023. Okay, and now turning back to the U.S. and actually to L.A., where a local official is officially going national, international actually, from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 16, 2023. Garcetti took a bumpy road to India. How Mayor was finally confirmed as Ambassador, Loyalty, Perseverance, Allies by Jennifer Habercorn. Washington. It took nearly two years, but former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti finally got the job. The Senate voted 52-42 to 42 Wednesday to confirm Garcetti as the next U.S. Ambassador to India. Seven Republicans joined all but three Democrats pre uh, present in approving him for the post. The former mayor had to fight for his new gig. President Biden picked Garcetti, a close political ally, for the Plum ambassadorial post in July of 2021. But the nomination soon stalled. Biden's Democratic allies on Capitol Hill raised concerns about whether Garcetti knew or should have known about a former top aide's alleged sexual harassment of colleagues. Ultimately, Biden's unflinching loyalty to Garcetti probably saved the former mayor's confirmation. By refusing to abandon his ally, even nominating him a second time when the new Congress began this year, and by allowing an important ambassadorship to sit vacant for a record amount of time, Biden created an unlikely standoff with Senate Democrats. Once Biden nominated him for a second time, it was clear that this was a priority for him. And it was now going to be pretty embarrassing if we couldn't confirm a nominee to one of our most important allies uh, for three years, said Senator Christopher S. Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, who, as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee with jurisdiction over U.S.-India relations, has long wanted an ambassador in place. Garcetti also had the help from Republicans who crossed the aisle to support his nomination in the hopes of bolstering the U.S.-India relationship. Through the lengthy, lengthy process, Garcetti never considered backing out, and Biden never asked him to do so, the former mayor said in an interview Wednesday. I checked in with him to make sure he still wanted me, Garcetti said, knowing that he didn't want to serve as a blockade to the president's foreign agenda. I can tell you, unequivocally, he said, Eric, I'm still 100% behind you. A longtime politician, but one who admitted to have to having few relationships in Washington besides the president, Garcetti acknowledged that it took time for him to meet senators, arrange meetings, and convey his response to the allegations surrounding the former aide, Rick Jacobs. When they look at my qualifications, they look at the evidence. It was not a tough vote, he said. Initially, it appeared as though Garcetti's nomination would sail through. He cleared the first Senate Foreign Relations Committee with vote in late 2021 without any voiced opposition signaling a clear path to final approval on the Senate floor. 
but soon enough the chatter surrounding Jacobs that he sexually harassed colleagues in Garcetti's office and that the former mayor knew or should have known crossed the country in Washington. Democrats were concerned that the support that supporting Garcetti would dent would dent their expressed zero tolerance policy on harassment. When asked about the matter and is in his committee he in his committee hearing in 2021, Garcetti said he did not know about Jacobs' alleged conduct and that if he had, he would have done something. Separately, Jacobs denied the allegations. By early 2022, complaints about Garcetti's handling of the Jacobs matter were growing louder. Senator Charles E. Grassley, Republican of Iowa, said that a whistleblower had contacted his office with allegations that Garcetti knew of Jacobs' actions. He announced an investigation and placed a hold on the nomination. A formal notice that he blocked any effort to fast-track the nomination. Other Republicans followed suit. The hold meant that if Democrats wanted to bring the nomination to the floor, they would need to hold two votes instead of one, and the tie and the tie-up value tie-up valuable Senate valuable floor time. Senate Democrats didn't want to spend time on the nomination, and some of their members found that some of their members found controversial. Several Democrats went public saying they were unsure whether they could support Garcetti, a potential death knell for his nomination in the chamber that was then equally divided at 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats, including the independents who caucused with them. Throughout the process, Biden was very, very involved, according to a White House official who spoke on condition of anonymity to talk frankly about the nomination. Biden was monitoring and being part of, of this closely for a long time and we just drove. The White House sent an unmistakable message to Capitol Hill. Biden was sticking with Garcetti. There was no plan B. If this vote failed, it would have started from scratch, Murphy said. Realistically, that would have meant that the post would remain vacant for the rest of this year. That's just compounding error upon error. Garcetti and his allies turned up the pressure in sometimes unconventional ways. He made frequent trips to Washington, sometimes approaching senators without appointments, according to several people familiar with his actions. In one case, Garcetti allies left Senator Mark Kelly, Democrat of Arizona, with the impression that the senator would be cut off from Garcetti's valuable donor network if he voted no, according to Politico. Kelly ultimately voted against the nomination. Garcetti said that he has enthusiastic friends and that he asked his allies only to make introductions. The former mayor's parents, former L.A. County District Attorney Gil Garcetti and Suki Garcetti, hired lobbyists to help with his confirmation. Even in Washington, lobbyists are rarely hired to shepherd ambassadorial nominees, and even more rarely hired by a nominee's parents. In 2022 alone, Garcetti's parents spent $90,000 on the effort, according to federal filings. Garcetti said on Wednesday that his family hired lobbyists to ensure that people who would have advocated for him anyway were probably paid and recognized for their work. Garcetti leaned on the few Washington friends he had, such as Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, was known Garcetti for decades. Booker missed the vote Wednesday, but told Garcetti he was pushing colleagues to vote yes from his cell phone on Amtrak. Other senators, including Murphy and Senator Christopher Coons, Democrat of Delaware, who was close with Biden, pressed their colleagues on the importance of having someone confirmed on, in, on the job. Republicans who are interested in the U.S.-India relationship echoed that message. 
the Biden administration and my colleagues here have taken far too long to fill what I think is one of the most vital ambassadorships that we have, said Senator Bill Hackerty of Tennessee, one of the Republicans who voted for Garcetti. Garcetti said he was patient through the ups and downs of the process as he served out the end of his mayorship. His successor, former Representative Karen Bass, was sworn in on December 11. On December 12, as that Christmas came, it became clear we have to do this now if it's ever going to get done, he said. A recent congressional delegation trip to India, led by Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, during which Indians questioned senators about why the world's preeminent superpower hadn't yet sent an ambassador to the world's largest democracy, bolstered Garcetti's case. And finally, Biden's renomination of Garcetti on the first day of the new Congress this year sent an unmistakable message. This was finally a, there was finally a decision when the president renominated him that he was entitled to a vote, says Senator Richard J. Durbin, Democrat of Illinois. Garcetti's close relationship with Biden, the president called to congratulate him just a few hours after his confirmation, will be a benefit to the U.S. relationship with India, Murphy said. A country like India wants to know that when they're talking to the ambassador, they're talking to someone who has the president's ear, Murphy said. Getting Eric confirmed was especially important because everybody knows how close he is to Biden. Garcetti is not yet sure when he will depart from New Delhi, but he and his family are ready to leave as soon as possible, he said. That was Garcetti took a bumpy road to India by Jennifer Habercorn from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 16, 2023. Time staff writer Courtney Subramanian contributed to this report. And here is a follow-up from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, March 25, 2023. Garcetti sworn in as ambassador. Former LA Mayor will represent the U.S. and India after a lengthy fight for confirmation by Courtney Subramanian, Washington. Eric Garcetti is officially the U.S. Ambassador to India. The former mayor of Los Angeles was sworn in on Friday by Vice President Kamala Harris, a fellow Californian. The ceremony capped off Garcetti's dramatic nearly two-year fight to fill one of Washington's most crucial diplomatic posts. Grinning, Garcetti raised his right hand while, perform while Harris performed the ceremony. Family members cheered when the two longtime friends shook hands. It feels great. Can't wait to serve, the newly minted ambassador said, flashing two thumbs up after the ceremony in Harris's ceremonial office, located in a building next to the White House. I'm so honored the vice president did this today. The Senate voted 52 to 42 to confirm Garcetti earlier this month, after his nomination had stalled for nearly two years over concerns about whether the former mayor knew or should have known about sexual harassment allegations against a former top aide. In an unexpected plot twist, seven Republicans crossed the aisle to help Garcetti secure the post, while three Democrats opposed him. President Biden, a close political ally of the former mayor, first nominated him in July 2021. Garcetti cleared his first Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing in late 2021 by a unanimous vote. But his pathway was soon blocked by the allegations against the former aide Rick Jacobs. Garcetti has denied any knowledge of the alleged misconduct. Biden refused to name a new nominee and renominated Garcetti on the first day of the new Congress in January, sending an unmistakable message that he was sticking with his choice. Garcetti sought to convince skeptical senators. 
the former mayor's parents, former L.A. County District Attorney Gail Garcetti and Suki Garcetti, hired lobbyists to help secure his nomination, spending $90,000 in 2022 alone, according to federal filings. I checked in with the president to make sure he still wanted me, Garcetti told the Times after he was confirmed. I can tell you, unequivocally, he said, Eric, I'm still 100% behind you. The U.S. has been without an ambassador to India since January 2021. Biden has sought to bolster economic ties with India and as he looks to counter China's growing influence in the region and shore up support for Ukraine against continuing Russian aggression. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has not explicitly condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and has continued to buy cheap gas from Moscow, shrugging up U.S. and European sanctions aimed at cutting off Russian President Vladimir Putin's ability to fund the war. The ceremony in Harris's office on Friday also marked a personal moment between the two politicians who ascended, to the, Cal ascended the California political world together. Harris and Garcetti's relationship spans more than 15 years, during which she served as California's Attorney General and later as a U.S. Senator for the state. During Biden's successful run for president, Garcetti, as the Biden campaign's national co-chair, recalled trudging through the Iowa snow with Harris in 2008 to knock on doors for then-Senator Barack Obama's presidential campaign. He has also spoken about their bond over their mixed heritage. Harris is of Indian and Jamaican descent, and Garcetti is of Jewish and Mexican-American. Garcetti's parents, his wife, Amy Wakelin, and Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, stood next to the former mayor to mark the occasion. Garcetti's daughter, Maya, held the historic Hebrew Bible on loan from the Library of Congress for the ceremony. Asked what he plans to, when he plans to travel to India, Garcetti said, hopefully, as soon as I can. That was Garcetti sworn in as ambassador by Courtney Subramanian from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, March 25th, 2023. All right, we have this story from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, March 20th, 2023. Torrance settles swastika lawsuit by Christian Martinez. The city of Torrance has paid a Redondo Beachman $750,000 after two police officers allegedly spray painted a swastika inside his car in 2020. The investigation into that incident led to the discovery of a trove of racist and homophobic text exchanges among Torrance police officers. The resulting scandal prompted prosecutors to toss dozens of felony cases. In January 2020, after discovering a swastika on his car's backseat, Kylie Swain filed a federal lawsuit against the city and its police department. The alleged incident occurred after he and two other men were arrested on suspicion of mail theft from an apartment building. Swain was later cleared of the mail theft charges. The two Torrance police officers, Christopher Tomsick and Cody Weldon, allegedly spray-painted the swastika, as well as a happy face on Swain's front passenger seat, and damaged the interior before having it towed away, Swain's attorney, Jeremy Stirring, said in a news release. After Swain was released, and went to retrieve his car, he saw the graffiti and reported it to Torrance Police. The case was referred to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, which filed conspiracy and vandalism charges against Tom Sick and Wilden, both of whom have left the force. The two men who pleaded not guilty are awaiting trial. 
In a comment provided to the Times through steering, Swain expressed disappointment that he was not told by Torrance police who vandalized his vehicle despite a promise that they would do so. Despite filing the report about the vandalism less than two days after it occurred, Swain was not notified about the case against Tomsick and Weldon until October 2021 after L.A. County District Attorney George Gascon announced the charges. I have been suing police officers for 39 years and I have never seen anything like this, Steering said in the statement. It never ceases to amaze me that quite often the very people entrusted by our citizens to protect us from dangerous criminals are more dangerous than the criminals who they are supposed to be protecting us from. The investigation into Tomsic and Weldon prompted prosecutors to search the officers' phones. The search turned up text exchanges among more than a dozen officers that included racist, anti-Semitic, and homophobic comments. After the text messages came to light, the LA County District Attorney's Office and the Torrance City Attorney's Office moved to toss dozens of cases involving the officers implicated in the text exchanges. The Torrance City Attorney declined to comment on the settlement. That was Torrance Settles Swastika Lawsuit by Christian Martinez from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, March 20th, 2023. Right, on to some entertainment news now. From the calendar section, the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 21st, 2023, Science Rides Again and Terraformers. Sci-fi writer Annalee Newitz got expert advice to help craft exotic fantasy world by Patrick J. Kiger. Annalee Newitz's newest science fiction novel, The Terraformers, is a sprawling saga set 60,000 years in the future. What's most compelling is how Newitz redefines what it means to be a person. The novel's characters include a flying moose named Whistle, a sentient passenger train, and an alternative human subspecies that's built a secret city underneath a volcano. When Newitz sets out to imagine the details of that exotic fantasy world where a malevolent corporation seeks to remodel a planet into a better version of Earth, the first step was talking with actual scientists. I worked as a journalist for a decade before I started writing fiction, Newitz says, and my journalism was always focused on science and a lot of times on cutting-edge science, and it still is. So it's definitely always kind of brushed up against speculative thinking. I always start out by interviewing not just scientists, but people who are experts in the topics that I'll be dealing with in the book. On March 28th, Newitz joined the LA Times Book Club for a live-streamed conversation about the the Terraformers. Newitz found the science fiction website IO9 and later served as editor-in-chief at Gizmodo. The 53-year-old novelist, who grew up in Irvine and now lives in San Francisco, also writes nonfiction for publications such as New Scientist, Wired, and Atlas Obscura. The author, who uses the pronouns they, them, speaks in a dazzling torrent of words and balances, uh, discourse, and on subjects such as robotics and earth science with self-deprecating quips. Newitz developed a deep research style while working on on their first novel, Autonomous, which was published in 2017. I was like, oh man, I really need to interview some roboticists now because I have no idea what I'm doing and I have a character who is a robot, they recalled. 
In the Terraformers, before I started writing, I wanted to understand what kind of a planet you would choose to do a terraforming project on, given that you're in the future and you could just search around for planets. How would you start? When you pick a planet, you, do you make all the nice things from Earth be there? But what parts of Earth would you leave out? One thing that came up when Newitz talked with uh, planetary scientists and geologists was plate tonics, the move of large portions of the Earth's surface that builds mountains but also causes earthquakes and tsunamis. I mean, the point is that earthquakes kind of suck for everybody, and of course you can get tsunamis even on the East Coast. So it was interesting to think about it from that angle. Additionally, I have this gigantic river in the novel. I thought if I have literally no idea how rivers work, I don't know how they form, Newitz says. That led, to, led, them, led them to contacting U.S. Geological Survey scientist P. Kyle House. Newitz asked House for suggestions on how characters would dam a river. He's like, I, have you heard of lava dams? where volcanic rocks and lava creates a dam and reroutes the river, Newitz recalls. And I was like, of course, it makes sense that that exists. That's so badass. It is definitely going in the book. Newitz got the idea for the terraformers from a friend, poet Stephanie Burt. I was agonizing about what I was going to write next, and she's like, you need to write a story about nation building. You know what happens long after the revolution? The notion, that notion appealed to Newitz, who also saw the chance to write a multi-generational epic. I read a lot of those. As a kid, I, I always enjoyed the feeling of like, oh, how, oh, now we get to see what happens much later. I wanted to experiment with that format. In writing the, comp the novel, Newitz compiled a massive document, essentially a mini-encyclopedia for the planet Zask-E to keep the details straight. One of the keys to writing science fiction, Newitz says, is trying to create an internally consistent imaginary world. I think it's part of the pleasure for readers, too, because the more consistent the world is, the more you can immerse yourself in it and escape from the dreadfully inconsistent world we live in. Popul <clears throat> populating that epic with compelling characters was the next part of the evolution. And though the Terraformers is set on another planet in a distant future, Newitz, is, Newitz still used the familiar technique of mining and repurposing, repurposing bits and pieces of old memories. Destry, the novel's tough but empathetic environmental ranger, gets her name from the lead character in the movie Destry Rides Again. In the 1939 Western movie, Jimmy Stewart plays the son of a legendary gunfighter who dislikes firearms and tries to avoid carrying one, even though he's a skilled marksman. I think it's one of Newitz's favorite films. It's one of Newitz's favorite films. I'm all in on Jimmy Stewart, the author says. That fits, because in some ways, The Terraformers is more like a classic Western than the bleak nightmare future portrayed in many science fiction novels and films. I grew up in the West, in California, they said, so to me, all the great stories of a settlement are connected with Westerns. Newitz sees a novel, sees the novel as a topia, a mix of utopia and dystopia, topia, in which characters such as Destry and her companion, the intelligent and emotional Moose Whistle, grapple with what the place they're building should be. Newitz describes Ranger Destry and the environmental rescue team as anti-imperialist settlers. 
They try to bargain with nature rather than conquer it. Destry and Whistle are part of a group that isn't just a belief system, Newitt says. They're actively building the, that world. I love the idea of them roaming the boreal forest and just trying to make sure that people aren't messing it up and that the predator animals aren't out of balance with the herb herbivores and things like that. There's a real connection between what they believe and what they've got what they get to do with their lives. The centuries-long scale of the terraformers may remind some sci-fi aficionados of a, a, can, a candle for Leibowitz, Walter M. Miller Jr.'s 1959 novel about the revival of human civilization after a nuclear war. Newitz appreciates that classic, but says it's very much not my style because it's so misanthropic. I can't tickle it for Leibowitz. It's about how we never get out of our, our how we how we never get out of our problems. Instead, Newitz imagines a future world in which uh, genetically engineered and, intelli and intelligent machines stand up against injustice. Newitz drew inspiration from the indigenous people who protested against pipelines and other activist movements. The human and human-like characters in Newitz's novel also have passionate experiences, sometimes despite their complicated artificial autonomy, anatomy. I feel like that freed me to be more honest about what love and eroticism really are. Newitz already is working on a new novel that's less sprawling in scope in addition to continuing their prolific journalistic output. But the novelist may not be done with Sask-E or a future 60,000 years down the road. I'm not a sequel person, so it's hard to imagine writing any kind of sequel, Newitz says. But obviously, never say never. Maybe when I'm 75, I'd be like, dude, I finally figured it out. I'm going to do this again. That was Science Rides Again and Terraformers by Patrick J. Kiger from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. Okay, we go on to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 23rd, 2023, A Rising Tide of U.S. Fascism. Jeff Charlotte reports about extremism as it takes hold yet retains some optimism by Stuart Miller. Jeff Charlotte is an optimist of sorts. That's why he included so many detailed scenes from Donald Trump's election rallies in his new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. In a video interview from his home in Vermont, Charlotte describes his latest book as the awful fruits of two decades of covering religion and the far right. Written across the better part of a decade, these essays spent time with hardcore militias, armed evangelicals, men's rights activists, and even some ordinary citizens who, in 2016 at least, had some legitimate reasons for buying what Trump was selling. But the question arises, reading his book, do we need to relive Trump's demonic performance art to hear his ranty hostilities even on the page? I'm sympathetic to that, says Charlotte, who previous, his previous book was The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, but he has reasons. Charlotte imagines a reader stumbling onto his book decades from now in the kind of used bookstore he likes to frequent. I've got to keep this stuff in or it will disappear, he says. Therein lies the optimism, the project of a future where when the convulsion of the present will feel alien and when people will still be reading books. 
He may be unusually hopeful for an author invoking civil war in his subtle, but Charlotte is not deluded. I think we're going to go through a period of fascism, he said. Right-wing intellectuals have actively rejected democracy now. Trump's emails are getting scarier, talking about this is the final battle. Our job is to hold on as long as we can, but we're going forward into the desert. The terror is about how much hurt and how much pain happens. Even if we do succumb to a fully-fledged fascist takeover, Shirley believes it will be temporary, and many of the burns in its life force very quickly. The heart of his book tracks our gradual descent into the madness. But first, a musical number. The opening chapter pointedly captures the life of Harry Belafonte, his music and politics, his perseverance and resilience. It's a fascinatingly odd choice. There's a calculator somewhere that could figure out how many fewer books I'll sell by starting with this chapter, Charlotte says with a laugh. People will come to the book because they're alarmed and distressed, and then they'll say, wait a minute, first I have to read about this? If I want a book about 1950s music, I'll get it. Nevertheless, Charlotte insisted the chapter belonged up front. I don't want people to encounter the book as a form of doom-scrolling, so you start with Harry's endurance and his hope. Then things fall apart. Charlotte worries that the U.S. military will fracture base by base, pointing to the way National Guard commanders in some states refuse to enforce vaccine mandates, as well as the actions of governors like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, who want to stand in the schoolhouse door against the federal government like the segregationist governors of the civil rights era. Either tr troops come and they're a hero, he says, or troops don't and they won. The undertow is generally closer to the ground a dark travelogue of a nation of simmering violence in which QAnon-influenced rabbit holders stalked perceived enemies, often without making headlines. Of those he encountered, Charlotte found the men's movement activists the most deplorable. They're always looking for complexities beyond the caricatures, he says. They were the only ones worse than the caricature, and their caricature is dumb. They really are a bunch of sniveling guys pissed off at their wives, ex-wives ex or girlfriends. You don't like your isolation and incel status? No better way to keep that than going, than joining, than going to join them. <clears throat> More frightening, however, was a threat he received at an Omaha church for trying to hold unauthorized conversations. Once it was, you're damned, but we'll talk to you because they wanted attention or thought you might convert, he says. Now it's, how do you know I don't have a gun? I didn't think they'd shoot me, but they were, barring, they were baring their teeth and they were definitely going to hit me or call the cops, who would definitely be on their side. Charlotte also writes in detail about Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist killed at the Capitol on January 6th. But his viewpoint may not be what you'd expect. She was a domestic terrorist, but that shooting was at best questionable, he says. I don't like it when cops kill people. Babbitt was a victim of another of the rabbit hole, he says, and her husband Aaron was an apolitical lunkhead before her grief fueled his evolution into a very sad character co-opted by the extreme right wing. Ultimately, Charlotte sees it as a tragedy that's been flattened in the public discourse. I find it grotesque both when she's trending online among right wingers as a martyr and when people who think of themselves as liberals are celebrating her death. 
He wants readers to feel empathy for the Babbitts and those he met along the way. Some of them might be worst of the worst, but ultimately we need to understand the right and its vulnerabilities. We should have empathy for the devil, not sympathy. In any event, Charlotte's goal isn't likely to persuade people like Babbitt. I'm not into converting people, he says. To counter the rise in white supremacist propaganda, we need a different path. We might look back to Harry. Belafonte is not trying to talk to people. He's not trying to talk people back. He's trying to make something beautiful that people will want to be a part of. We must build a vibrant democratic culture and take seriously the critiques of it. He knows some on the left uh, will disagree with his perspective, but argues that those fighting for democracy must stop squabbling over methods. In pre-war Germany, he notes, liberals were bashing each other as fascism took root. This is all hands on deck time, he says. We don't know what's going to work. You want to make jokes or write a long political science essay or do earnest union organizing or create beautiful art and poetry? It's all good. Charlotte never saw himself becoming a veteran of the extremist beat. Years ago, he had declared himself done with covering white extremism. It's so poisonous. But now he calls up, on, calls up the famous Michael Corleone line about being pulled back in by Trump's ascension. I had to write that I had to write to try and make sense of this, he says. I have some agency I can tell these stories. I have kids that I'm scared for. This book isn't going to help, but it's me. Um, but it lets me imagine that I'm doing something. To me, it's much scarier to be looking away. No blue pill for me. That was A Rising Tide of U.S. Fascism by Stuart Miller. From the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. It's called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War by Jeff Charlotte, S-H-A-R-L-E-T, Norton Publishing, 352 pages, cost $29. All right, now here's something from the website tvinsider.com. This is called Grey's Anatomy. Kim Raver shares how 24 influenced how she directed that cliffhanger by Meredith Jacobs, March 23, 2023. Kim Raver goes behind the camera for an important episode of Grey's Anatomy and just when you think you can't breathe. Kate Walsh returns as Dr. Addison Montgomery as the clinic welcoming OBGYN trainees from states restricting how they practice to teach them abortion care. It's a rough shift and just when they think they can breathe, a car runs over Addison and one of the trainees as they leave through the back. Raver offers a director's perspective on this episode. You did an amazing job directing this episode. It was emotional, important, chaotic, and I felt that all throughout. Raver, that makes me feel so good. It's massive, right? Isn't it incredible how many things they have in there? What I love about Grays is that um, is, is they, is they, is they weren't like, oh, it's your first episode. Let's just do everything in the ER. It was like, You've got a stunt car, uh, with a car. You've got a stunt with a brick. You've got a song. You've got Kate Walsh coming back. I was like, yeah, bring it on. Question. That's uh, that. There's all that. And sometimes actors may be in an episode less if they're directing. But Teddy is everywhere. Answer. I know. Kevin McKidd said to me, wait a minute. My first episode I directed, they sent Owen to the dentist. I was like, not me. Question. How did you direct Grey's? How did how did you directing Grey's come out? Answer: 
I think what's so amazing about Shondaland is there's so many women doing so many incredible jobs that they really, and that really starts at Shonda Rhimes and Betsy Beers, and then the amazing women they've hired, Debbie Allen and Krista Vernoff and Meg Marinas. About three years ago, I started producing, and I got the rights to this series of books, and my husband and I co-directed together and executive produced. I just thought, wow, this is the most amazing thing ever. I love this, but I've never directed alone. Then I started watching Chandra Wilson and Kevin McKidd and Debbie Allen, and I secretly was having these thoughts to myself. But I wanted to just observe and learn as much as I could. When they would change, when they, uh, when they would change the lights instead of going in the green room and hanging out with everyone, I would be watching everything that they were doing. Uh, then I got up the guts to talk to Debbie, and I said, "Look, I really want to direct. It's not a, a given at Grace just because you're an actor that they're going to let you direct. You have to prove yourself to Debbie." And it's such a smart thing because she sets you up for success. Because she has not made me shadow her and really mentored me, I feel like I was so prepared for what I finally got this huge episode because of all of the things that I had to do along the way. Then she gave me episode 11 and they handed me this incredible script. Question. Talk about directing that ending because you're still you're selling up, setting up the cliffhanger. You had the cliffhanger itself and you have that conversation between Addison and the trainee. Answer. When they're coming out of the clinic, I wanted this feeling of the storm had passed. It's a huge storyline through and through, and everyone's been through a lot. I wanted that kind of calm so that when the car came, it's such a shock that I literally wanted people to gasp. I had originally thought I was going to uh, do a crane shot, of, uh, crane shot up off of Addison, and then while we were shooting, I scream at the actors, run in, run in, do your doctoring, because I know being on the show, the first thing that we would do is go in and do medical on our own. I screamed at Chandra, do the ABCs, do the ABCs, so she tilted her head and she listened. For me, that moment where we don't know what's going to happen and we have this incredible storyline and this friendship and doctors working together and here they are in this, re this life-threatening moment that I also really wanted to incorporate Bailey in that moment because they've been through so much together. They had that they have that incredible scene in the closet beforehand and a couple of episodes back that Jesse Williams directed. So I definitely wanted to keep the story through uh, through line together all the way to the end. And then I wanted that feeling of on a show that I did called 24. One of the things I loved that they did is that they is that just when you felt so satisfied and you get this juicy tidbit and you thought you had solved the whole thing in the last 30 seconds, they give you this question where you're like, what is happening? And then they go out. I just wanted you to have the kind of emotional gut punch and then be like, wait, what? And then and, and just set up leading into, the Kev, into Kevin's episode. That's how I thought about it and the design, and design of it. And it always goes to this story. What story am I telling? I'm telling a very important discussion that is going on in our world today, and I want it, and I want it in that moment as well as to carry that through uh, through line. Question: What is next after that cliffhanger? Answer: I will say that Kevin does the most credible, incredible opening shot. We have to rehearse this huge scene connected to scene connected to scene that is so exquisitely done that you're on the edge of your seat the whole first act. 
I feel like it's a beautiful cinematically continuing of the story that we do in Eleven. Question. You mentioned it before, and I have to say the scene with Addison and Bailey in the supply room was one of the best of the episode. Talk about directing that because you did such a great job, and Kate and Chandra were fantastic in it. Answer. They were so supportive. Look, all of the actors in our cast, they can do their characters in their sleep. They don't need anything from me. But they were so generous to hear my little tidbit notes that I would whisper to them that I had envisioned as the whole piece and the whole story that I wanted to tell. So for me, it was such a gift that was shot at very quiet. I had three cameras on them, and the performances that they were delivering were below, were blowing me away in Video Village. There was one or two things that I wanted to just play around with them and have fun. Kate and Chandra just knocked it out and knocked it out of the park. Question: What were the most fun and most challenging scenes to direct? Answer: The idea of having these two enormous stunts. We don't do a lot of stunts and grays, and the song was really threading a needle because I didn't want it uh, com comedic or sappy or melodramatic. It really had to be a very specific moment, and for me, it's about these women coming together and overcoming. I felt like the minute I clued into the story point of what it was, it then took off from there, which was exciting. But that was really challenging because, first of all, it's in the clinic. It's a women. It's a woman giving birth. So you have to strategically place the cameras. You still want to see the rest of the clinic because it's scripted that everyone in the clinic is singing so you can't have curtains. So we had to literally piece by piece design that clinic and we had never shot in the clinic. It was, uh, it was the first time we were shooting there. That's really a shout out to the incredible crew of Grey's Anatomy, the design and the collaboration. And then the same with the stunts. Our stunt people have this incredible stop where they jump up onto the hood of the car. In my mind, I gave reasons why they were crossing the street, why they were in the middle of the road. I designed those papers falling up to the ground and then them picking them up. But in your mind is one thing, and this being my first one, I just wasn't sure whether what was in my mind, what was actually going to execute and come out right. So for me, the challenging ones were also the most rewarding because they were so massive. And I think one of the most rewarding things for me is to really be able to collaborate with the actors. It's one thing when you're acting with someone, you learn something about a person. You learn a different uh, and, uh, and another beautiful layer about this cast when you're directing them. And what's so amazing is every single person has a different way of look of working. I would watch these performances and the things that I had imagined in my head. I would watch them unfold and the collaboration between the camera and the actors. And we have to do a, sh a shout out for my DP. She's just this brilliant female DP. We are really women supporting women. And th another thing that I tried to do was uh, echo back to some really fun original Grey's Anatomy moments with the interns and also with Bailey. It was so important that I had that one scene where Bailey is looking out about to start the day at the clinic and the sun is rising. That moment was so important for me because I felt like Chandra and Jim Pickens Jr. had been here since the beginning and I just wanted, especially with reproductive rights, to have her to have her moment there. And then also some really fun little kind of winks at the fans. 
Originally, I think Simone, Alexis Floyd, is supposed to be in bed talking to Trey, William Martinez. And I had her getting out of bed, going into her bathroom, and there's no toothpaste. So then she goes into the communal bathroom, and there's people in there. I just love that. It's kind of hectic, and that's their crazy, hectic life. And then I love the scene of them rushing into the locker room, and Lucas, Nico Turho, is coming out of the shower, and the steam is coming out of there. Question. I love the Teddy and Richard scenes in this episode. Answer. I really just love working with Jim Pickens. He is such a special person, and he and really it's just an honor to work with him. I feel like it's so effortless. I feel like when we work together, it's just pure joy, and it's like Teddy is always kind of hectic and running a running and running after him in the in the hall, and she's trying to negotiate with him. When she gets that little moment of praise, I think that, especially with Teddy not having any family really anymore, except for her immediate family, but her past family, that moment where he kind of compliments her, and then he calls him on his little complimenting himself. I just love their their banter back and forth. This episode is so well written. Question. Will we get more of those two together? Answer. I think so. Bailey and Richard are so experienced in that area. I think it's a really lovely place for Teddy to go and kind of my mentorship. I feel like similar to the way I go to Debbie Allen. She was such an incredible mentor for me in this episode. And that's and that it's just nice to have that. And that was Grey's Anatomy. Kim Raver shares how 24 influenced how she directed that cliffhanger. By Meredith Jacobs from TVInsider.com, March 23rd, 20. 23. Okay, let's read some articles from the L.A. Jewish Home, March 16th through the 29th, 2023, Volume 1, Number 11, your favorite bi-weekly family read. And we will start off with the Week in News section. And start off with this one, the global news story, The Stray Dogs of Chernobyl, author unknown. After the disaster of the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, Ukraine, in 1986, local residents were forced to permanently evacuate, leaving behind their homes and, in some cases, their pets. Concern that these abandoned animals might spread disease or contaminate humans, officials tried to exterminate them. And yet a population of dogs somehow endured. They found fellowship with Chernobyl I-I-I-I-Clean-Up crews, and, uh, the, and the power plant workers who remained in the area sometimes gave them food. Today, hundreds of free-ranging dogs live in the area around the site of the disaster known as the Exclusion Zone. They roam through the abandoned city of Prepyat and bed down in the highly contaminated Semikoti train station. Now scientists have conducted the first deep dive into the animal's DNA. The dogs of Chernobyl are genetically distinct, distinct, different from purebred canines as well as other groups of free-breeding dogs, scientists reported Friday in Science Advances. It remains too soon to say whether or how the radioactive environment has contributed to the unique genetic profiles of the dogs of Chernobyl, scientists said. But the study is the first step in an effort to understand not only how long-term radiation exposure has affected the dogs, but also what it takes to survive in an environmental catastrophe. The project is a collaboration among scientists in the United States, Ukraine, and Poland, as well as the Clean Futures Fund, a nonprofit based in the United States 
that works in Chernobyl. The nonprofit, which was established in 2016, began as an effort to provide health care and support to power plant employees who still work in the exclusion zone. But the organization soon realized that Chernobyl's canine residents needed help too. Although the dog population boomed during the summer, it often crashed in the winter when food became scarce. Rabies was an ongoing concern. In 2017, the Clean Futures Fund began holding veteran clinics for the local dogs, providing care, administering vaccines, and spaying and neutering the animals. The researchers piggybacked on those clinics to collect blood samples from 302 dogs living in different locations and in and around the exclusion zone. This is from the New York Times that was called The Stray Dogs of Chernobyl, a global news story, and this is an Israel news story, author unknown, Hungary to Move Embassy, author unknown. Last week, Hungary announced that it would be moving its embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, a move regarded as a gesture to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from his Hungarian counterpart, Viktor Orban. The two reached an agreement on the matter in recent days with the details hashed out during intensive talks between Foreign Minister Eli Cohen and Hungary's top diplomat Peter Sijarto. This action will make Hungary the first European Union member of the state to open an embassy in Jerusalem. Netanyahu has long had close relations with Orban, who has been in power since 2010. Their bond has further tightened since Netanyahu's return to power after the general election in November. During a, a visit to Israel in 2019, Orban promised to establish a trade office with diplomatic status in Jerusalem, which opened several months later. This is a very exciting moment for us because it's the first European diplomatic mission opened in Jerusalem in many decades, and three Hungarian diplomats are going to be assigned to this office for trading purposes, Netanyahu said then at the opening ceremony. That's important for trade, for diplomacy, and for the move that Hungary is leading right now to change the attitude in Europe towards, toward Jerusalem. U.S. President Donald Trump recognized Israel as Israel's capital and moved the U.S. mission there in 2018. Budapest has in recent years been Jerusalem's staunchest supporter in the European Union, blocking several efforts to issue statements critical of Israeli policies. For instance, in 2020, Hungary was one of the only countries that did not publicly speak out against Israel's plan since scuttled to unilaterally annex swaths of the West Bank. In August 2021, Orban lamented in an interview with Fox News that Netanyahu's election loss was a challenge for him and praised the Israeli leader as a good friend of Hungary. When he was in power, he always invested a lot of energy in having a good relationship with Central European countries, he said. After Netanyahu's right religious bloc won parliamentary elections last year, Orban tweeted, what a great victory for Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. Hard times require strong leaders. Welcome back. He attached a picture of himself holding Netanyahu's new memoir. That was Hungry to Move Embassy, author unknown. That was an Israel news story. And now here's an That's Odd news story. This is called Marathon Moments, author unknown. Megan Cassidy is on the move. The Florida woman is now the proud owner of a new Guinness World Record title after she ran 23 ultra-marathon runs, 31.1 miles in a 23-day period. The 41-year-old ran the mega-marathons from December 17 until January 8, Guinness confirmed. Running every day like that, it's not so bad because you keep up with it, Cassidy told the Osella News Gazette 
Even so, she admitted it wasn't so easy. There are days it got kind of lonely, she said. But I'd wear a bib telling about what I was doing, and people loved hearing about it. Cassidy said as she completed her runs in the Lake Nona area due to the quality of the trails. Interestingly, one of the most difficult parts of her attempt was making sure to take in enough food. It was hard to eat enough calories in the first few days, Cassidy explained. Your brain tries to stop you from doing this so it tells you that you're not hungry. I had to tell my boyfriend to make sure that I ate at least a quarter of a pan of lasagna every day, she said. The previous record was 22 days. Cassidy says that she probably could have gone past 23 days, but she needed to go back home. She's on the run. That was Marathon Moments, Althra Known, and that's an odd news story. All right, this is a national news story. To infinity and beyond, Althra Known. On Thursday, SpaceX and NASA launched a fresh crew of astronauts on a mission to the International Space Station, kicking off a roughly six-month stay in space. The mission, which is carrying two NASA astronauts, a Russian cosmonaut, and an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates, took off from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The Crew Dragon, the vehicle carrying the astronauts, detached from the rocket after teaching or reaching orbit. After about one day of maneuvering through space, it linked up with the space station. Thursday's launch marked the second attempt to get this mission, called Crew-6, off the ground. The first launch attempt was grounded last Monday by what officials said was a clogged filter. During the launch, uh, during the launch broadcasts, uh, officials had reported that ground systems engineers made the decision to call off the launch with less than three minutes on the clock. The engineers said they detected an issue with a substance called TEA-TEB, a highly combustible fluid that is used to ignite the Falcon 9 rocket's engines at liftoff. The issue occurred during the bleed-in process, which is meant to ensure that each of the Falcon 9 rocket's nine engines will be fed with enough of the TEA-TEB fluid when it's time for ignition. The problem arose as the fluid moved from a holding tank on the ground into a catch tank, according to NASA. Benji Reed, SpaceX's Director of Crew Mission Management, said that reviews of the data found that the rocket probably would have taken off without a hitch despite the clogged filter, though flight controllers didn't have enough data during the countdown to be certain. That's not how we want to launch people, Reed said during a post-launch news conference on Thursday. We want people to know for sure that it's going to be okay. There was no problem with Thursday's launch. This mission marks the seventh astronaut flight SpaceX has carried out on NASA's behalf since 2020. Continuing the public-private effort to keep the orbiting laboratory fully staffed, the Crew-6 team on board includes NASA astronauts Stephen Bowen, a veteran of three space shuttle missions, and first-time flyer Warren Woody Hoberg, as well as Sultan Aliadi, who was the second astronaut from the UAE to travel to space, and Russian cosmonaut Andrei Fedeyev. Once Bowen, Hoberg, Fedeyev, and Alianadi are on board the space station, they'll work to take over operations from the SpaceX Crew-5 astronauts who arrived at the space station in October 2022. They're expected to spend up to six months on board the orbiting laboratory, carrying out science experiments and maintaining the two-decade-old station. 
That was to infinity and beyond, author unknown. That was a national news story. And now we've got a local news story. This is called Jewish Summer Camp and Retreat Center Heavily Damaged in Running Springs Blizzard. Author unknown. The David Oved Retreat Center, home to the Moshava Alive Summer Camp, was severely damaged by the recent blizzards that dumped upwards of 12 feet of snow on parts of the San, Bernard San Bernardino Mountains. Thankfully, despite the incredibly challenging conditions, all of our staff is safe said Avi Matanki, executive director of B'nai Akiva of Los Angeles. However, we are now learning of the devastation to our campus. The local staff was able to report that the dining hall collapsed under the weight of the snow. Because of the heavy snow and gas leaks in the area, they were unable to complete a full evaluation of the site, but they expect to see further damage to the campus. The Dovid Oved Retreat Center located in Running Springs and run by B'nai Akiva of Los Angeles, is occupied annually by over 5,000 guests from corporate retreats as well as schools and synagogues across the spectrum who use the beautiful rustic campgrounds to host meaningful programs and special Shabbat services. In the summer months, the campus is home to Moshava Alivi, a Jewish summer camp where upwards of 450 campers and staff enjoy spirited, fun-filled summers surrounded by the lakes and mountains of San Bernardino. Because of the snow damage, the Dovid uh, Ovid Retreat Center has already had to cancel five retreats totaling over $100,000 in lost revenue. With the number of can cancellations and lost revenues likely to grow, safety is our top priority now, says Matanki. We have, we, already, we have already issued cancellations through this upcoming weekend and will reevaluate once the roads are open. The state of emergency is lifted and we are able to properly assess the damage. We are committed to safely accommodating our future retreat guests as soon as possible and we fully expect to completely be completely operational in time for Moshava Alivi summer camp, said Matanki. The Dovid Oven Retreat Center is extremely grateful for, to all the first responders in Running Springs and San Bernardino counties. Our thoughts go out to our Running Springs neighbors and year-round residents who are continuing to feel the effects of the blizzard, said Batanki. With the campus facing millions of dollars in damage and significant lost revenues, Mataki said, B'nai Akiva will continue to provide updates on the status of the campus and will soon begin an emergency campaign to support this very important community asset. For more information, please contact Avi Matanki at 310-248-2450, extension 101, or A-M-A-T-A-N-K-Y at b'neiakiva.org. That's B-N-E-I-A-K-I-V-A-L-A dot org. That's Jewish Summer Camp and Retreat Center Heavily Damaged in Running Springs Blizzards, author unknown. This was a local news story. Here's another local news story. This is called Busy Pesach Preparations at Tomke LA, author unknown. This Pesach season, Tomke LA will be assisting over 4,000 individuals totaling over 560 families in our community. Over the next few weeks, dedicated and selfless volunteers will be helping Tomke LA distribute over 2,700 food packages that include 20,000 pounds of chicken and meat, 15,000 pounds of fresh produce, 2,500 pounds of matzah, 
2,000 dozen eggs, and thousands of dry good items. The average cost per family for a tomke for food is $500 retail value, whereas if the family would be shopping in the store, it would be well over $1,800. Our budget for this Pesach season alone is over $500,000. The Tomke LA Store Credit Program will be assisting over 340 families with over $200,000 in store credit, where families can shop at the kosher store of their choice with dignity. Our incredible one-of-a-kind clothing team, led by Shandy Merrillis, Cyril Landau, Rochelle Haberman, Zipporah Coronel, and Linda Miraman, will be distributing over 5,000 articles of brand-new, beautiful, hand-picked clothing. The items include women's, girls, and toddlers, dresses, tops, skirts, robes, and PJs, as well as top-quality men's and boys' suits, shirts, and toddler sets. The items are distributed to over 475 families in a discreet and dignified manner, with scheduled appointments, personal shoppers, and dressing rooms. The average cost per family is $500, which has a retail value of over $1,500. Through the benevolence of a very generous donor, Tonke LA will also be giving tickets and parking passes to Knott's Berry Farm for all the families with children under the age of 16 for Hol Hamoed. This would cost a family of six over $350. All in all, the retail value of the assistance we are providing this Pesach for the average family is close to $4,000. That goes a very long way in helping a family that is already struggling to cover their basic bills. With the cost of living soaring on all fronts, we have to make sure that no, none of our neighbors get left behind. Without the generous support of our donors and volunteers, we would not be able to make this happen. It's our community. It's our responsibility. There was busy Pesach preparations at Tom K. L.A., author unknown, a local news story. And those are articles from the This Week in News section. And now we go to some articles from around the community. And this one is Y-A-Y-O-E Mom's Night Out, author unknown. Moms of first to third grade girls took a break from their Purim preparations to enjoy a fun, meaningful evening at Young Israel of Hancock Park. While the women partook in a delicious spread of sushi and salads, Mora Eti shared inspiring words of Torah about Purim, masks, gratitude, and simcha. Mora Eti asked each woman to choose something to do for Hashem for the next month. This evening continued with soulful singing, followed by spirited adar dancing. The moms then enjoyed dessert while they decorated t-shirts for their daughters. Thank you to everyone who worked hard to prepare this beautiful evening. Everyone had a wonderful time. That's Y-A-Y-O-E Moms Night Out, author unknown. This next one is called Friendship Circles Purim on Safari, author unknown. Purim on Safari was an incredible celebration that brought together over 60 families creating a wild and exciting atmosphere that made this special day even more unforgettable. From the moment everyone arrived, there was a sense of excitement and anticipation in the air and the festivities did not disappoint. As the live band featured Rabbi Michi and their friends took the stage, the crowd erupted in cheers and applause. The music was infectious, and soon everyone was on their feet, dancing and swaying to the beat. The energy was contagious, and the joy and happiness on everyone's faces were simply infectious. 
The highlight of the night was the wild animal show. The crowd gasped in amazement as a monkey leaped onto the stage, followed by an alligator, a fox, and a mink. The animals were so exotic and beautiful, and it was incredible to see them up close and personal. The children were especially thrilled, and their faces lit up with wonder and amazement as they watched the animals perform their tricks. Everyone also got to experience the mitzvahs of Purim, with a sensory-friendly family Megillah reading that brought the story of Esther to life. The Purim Suda was also wild and delicious, with exotic foods and drinks that tantalized the taste buds and added to the festivity atmosphere of the day. Of course, no celebration would be complete without some crafts, and the safari crafts were a real hit. From animal masks to safari cameras and the interactive forum and safari-themed iSpy bottles, there was something fun for everyone. Overall, Purim on Safari was an incredible event that brought together families and friends for a day of joy, excitement, and celebration. It was a true testament to the power of community and the importance of coming together to celebrate the things that matter most. Everyone is left with memories that they will cherish for a lifetime and already can't wait for next year's Purim celebration. That was Friendship Circle's Purim on Safari, author unknown. This next one is Candyland at Maimo. Author unknown. The students at Maimonides were in for a treat this year as the entire school was transformed into Candyland. The hallways, chair cushions, ceilings, and walls were covered with disguise, disguised for Adar. The students were on a sugar high, to say the least, from all of the fun activities throughout the week, and participating in these games and assemblies in a converted space added another level. Activities this year included a dance party led by DJ Yoav, Purim Jeopardy, dress updates, hamantash and baking, fun trips through the week uh, culminating in a Purim carnival. Each year we are grateful to have two Bat Ami emissaries, Israeli young ladies volunteering to enrich our children's year by bringing a little slice of Israel to our school and community. Uh, this, this year they outdid themselves. Special thanks to our Bat Ami Shani Shitrit and Noah Kreutzer for all of their hard work and creativity. It was delicious. That was Candylin at Maimo, author unknown. This next one is called Mom Spa Night for Friendship Circle Mothers, author unknown. A night of pampering and relaxation was the perfect way to show some love to our wonderful Friendship Circle moms. From the moment they arrived, they were whisked away in luxury transportation to a beautiful yacht in Marina del Rey. The stunning setting set, uh, set the tone for an evening that was all about indulging in some much-deserved self-care. Moms were greeted with warm smiles and given the choice to start with a relaxing massage or a beautiful manicure. The skilled therapists and technicians worked their magic, leaving our moms feeling refreshed and rejuvenated. The delicious food and drinks kept coming, adding to the luxurious atmosphere and making it a night to remember. Our friendship circle moms left feeling like queens, grateful for the opportunity to take a break from their busy lives and treat themselves to some well-deserved TLC. It was truly a night of joy and celebration filled with laughter, love, and camaraderie. Thanks to Fantasy Yacht and the amazing vendors who contributed their talents, it was an evening of pampering at its best. That was called Mom's Spa Night for Friendship Circle Mothers. Author unknown. 
Those are some of the articles from the Around the Communities section from the L.A. Jewish Home publication, March 16th through the 29th, 2023, Volume 1, Number 11, your favorite bi-weekly family read. Here's a little article, uh, an ad from this particular publication. I need help with my teen. Ascend Healthcare, Residents and Outpatient Services, Teen Mental Health and Substance Abuse Treatment. Website, www.ascendhc.com. Phone is 310-361-3202. And folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.